0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was about, I'm guessing, 19 or 20 years old when I first did this, what I'm doing tonight. My first Bible study at a church. It was a real gig. It was a real church service, and a pastor who had a church in California. His name was Paul Smith, and he invited me on a Sunday night to teach a Bible study. I had never done one. I'd done one in homes before, and I'd never done one in a church. So I got all prepared, and I studied Jonah chapter one, and I was going to teach about Jonah. And and I, it was, I was a nervous wreck. And and the long and short of it was, is after that evening, I felt like such a failure. I felt like I wanted to go home and crawl under a rock and never do that again, ever. I just thought, this isn't for me. After the service, Paul Smith came up to me, put an arm around me and said, that was so good. Now, he might have gone. <laughs> but he said, that was so good. And he encouraged me. He goes, I want you to do it again next week. Only next week, do chapter 2 of Jonah. There's four chapters in it. Finish out the book. So what I felt I like was a failure... And I saw within a man an encourager to help me do it again. Well, we're dealing with the time of God's deliverance for his people. And I love that of all the people he chooses, he chooses what would probably to himself, Moses, he would consider himself a failure, an 80-year-old failure. But 40 years after his failure of murdering an Egyptian, of fleeing to the wilderness, of getting lost 40 years later. God uses him and gives him a second chance, very similar to the second chance that I get. Well, here's the rub. As soon as God tells Moses what he's going to do, Moses isn't all that excited about being in the ministry. He doesn't really want the second chance. In fact, you're going to discover he has some excuses, five of them of why he shouldn't do it, why he doesn't want to do it. Why God wouldn't be calling him, why he's not the right person. It's fascinating. God chooses him because he wants to use him. But Moses doesn't want to be used. I bet you've heard the story about the husband and wife getting up on a Sunday morning, getting ready for church. Wife comes in all ready to go to church, sees her husband laying around in bed. She says, get up, it's time for church. He goes, I don't want to go. She goes, what do you mean you don't want to go? Give me three good reasons why you shouldn't go. He goes, well, that's easy. Number one, the people at that church are cold and uncaring. Number two, nobody there likes me. And number three, I just don't feel like it. And she says, well, let me give you three reasons why you should get up and come to church with me. Number one, the church is warm and very sensitive. Number two, a few people like you. And number three, you're the pastor. So get up and get dressed. Now, the the truth of the matter is, the basis of divine choice is often contrary to what makes sense as a human being. The basis of God's choice doesn't always make sense to us. In fact, it's contrary to human reason. Classic example, the 12 apostles. Honestly, if those guys weren't in the Bible and you didn't know their names, I bet none of you would pick them. Jesus knew about them, and he knew about them in advance, and he picked them. And I would say that the Bible is filled with people who had second chances, people who had failed, and God used them to do a powerful work. And Jonah would be a perfect example of that. He failed the first time God tried to get him motivated. You remember that story? God wouldn't let him go. And when he was down and out and really down in the mouth, literally, of the whale, he cried out to God and God used him. Peter was another one. He denied the Lord. Jesus wouldn't let him go. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? John chapter 21. Then feed my sheep. John Mark was another one. On Paul's missionary journey, that young man decided to run away And there was a great falling out between Paul and Barnabas because of it. But years later, Paul said, Bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. God's all about second chances. And can I just add a PS? And third chances and fourth chances. And you might be on 79th chance. He's all about that as well. Verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Actually, technically, Mount Sinai is here and Horeb would be like right here, a little bit lower, but right next to it. I've climbed both peaks. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, right in the same location. Have you ever thought of what Moses' daily routine was like at this time in his life? Forty years in the desert, same Terrain, same sheep, same smell, same routine. Every single day for years, he's a shepherd. He's out in the middle of the desert. What a contrast to how he lived growing up in Egypt. He was no doubt pampered. He had the best of everything. Now he's out in the middle of the desert. In fact, Moses has the job. He had grown up to despise Do you remember that text back in Genesis chapter 46? When Joseph brings his family into Egypt, he gives them the land of Goshen. Very, very good for raising livestock, but sort of tucked out of the way. The Egyptians really didn't go there. That's where the shepherds went. And the writer of Genesis, Moses, says, For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And now Moses... Once an Egyptian, or at least raised in an Egyptian home, is what he grew up to despise a shepherd. Yet, this is preparation for his future. He's going to find it very valuable. Think of it. Spending that much time in Midian in the Sinai Peninsula was very helpful because soon he would be leading the children of Israel through that same topography. He'll get a hands-on knowledge of what is going on in that region. Number two, he's leading a lot of sheep. Good preparation for leading lots of people. Whose behavior isn't a lot different than sheep, by the way. Number three, a very important aspect of leadership will be learned by Moses, and it's called humility. Forty years of being in the desert after you're an Egyptian prince brings humility. And that would be absolutely necessary if he is going to lead men or women in any capacity at all. Now, the day that God calls Moses was a day like any other day, no different. It was an ordinary day. The sun rose, he gets up, he takes his father-in-law's flock, he goes out to the desert, tries to find pasture land for them, which, by the way, in Midian was a challenge because it's so barren, you really have to hunt for some land that is filled with water and lush enough for animals to feed on. So it was an ordinary day. And what I like about that is to simply say that When God is going to move in your life, He won't warn you in advance. He won't give you a dream the night before and say, Just be aware, tomorrow will be a very special day. Because you wouldn't get any sleep the rest of the night, because you would know exactly what that meant. Your life just sort of goes on, and it's an ordinary day, and when you least expect it, God can change directions, or speak to you dramatically, or start something wonderful, a new relationship, a new journey. I never forget the evening when my now father-in-law, who that time was Dr. Farley, called me and wanted to have a man-to-man talk with me and why I dated his daughter and is it over and if it's over, at least contact her and tell her it's over. I hadn't dated her for a year. But you owe her at least a communication and a conversation. Well, guess what that led to? This. That was a wonderful day. But it was an ordinary day. Until that phone call. And things changed. And things were going to change for Moses. Verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, a bush was burning with fire. But the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. An unexpected source of revelation. Now, the angel of the Lord will speak through the bush, and it will be the Lord speaking, we discover, called the angel of the Lord, but through a burning bush. Now, so far in the Old Testament, God has spoken in a couple of different ways. Uh, Sometimes an audible voice. Abraham must have had just an audible voice. Isaac, Jacob heard the voice of God. That's pretty dramatic in and of itself. But sometimes there was the angel of the Lord who appeared in here once again, but this is not really unusual. Now, a burning bush, on the other hand, is very unusual. And as Moses is gazing out over the terrain, he sees something that he has never seen before, got his attention. He goes, I've got to go check that out. I've never seen a bush burn in the desert that doesn't immediately get extinguished because it's consumed. So he goes to check it out. Now, when God speaks, there are normal, typical ways that God speaks. Now, I want to be very careful how I frame this. Because I believe that God spoke in many ways, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And principally God speaks through His Word. But, I just want to say, be open to the Lord getting through to you in ways that are unusual and unpredictable and different. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 15... This is a weird thing that Abraham saw when he was sort of half in a sleep and half out of a sleep. Do you remember that? That burning oven and flax traveling through the, the the two halves of different animals as the sun was setting. And it was really a weird thing. We made mention of that when we went through it. And yet God was speaking. And so if God chooses to speak in unusual means... He does it because he wants to do it. Number two, he could do it because maybe, just maybe, you're a little bit harder headed and the normal means haven't worked. So this is really going to work. I mean, this is going to be something Moses is never going to forget. Verse four. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses. Why did he say his name twice? I don't know. Well, I don't. And he said, here I am, which is a good thing to say if the Lord's talking to you. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I got a question for you. What's so holy about a barren desert? Holy ground? He's been looking at this ground for a year, 40 years. This is desert. This is the place I lead my sheep from to find pasture and and, and something that's irrigable and, and drinkable. What makes this ground so holy? Well, what's the answer? The presence of God. And that's the point. God's presence gives ordinary places and ordinary circumstances extraordinary status. If the Lord is in this place, and the Lord has brought you to this place, then embrace it. Now, as I preach that, I'm speaking to myself, because I want to make a confession. When I moved years ago from Southern California to New Mexico, and I remember the first winter, I thought, I looked at my wife and said, Lenny, there's like this stuff on the ground I've never seen before. She said, honey, that's, it's called frost. I go, Really? Wow, so it gets really cold here. That's frost, huh? And, I mean, I was used to winters with flowers and grass and green stuff and, you know, not like leaves falling off the trees. And, and so it was quite a shock for me. And I developed over time a real complaining spirit. And it was basically, honestly, sinful. Because if the Lord brings you to a place and the Lord is in this place, then you embrace the place and that is holy ground for you, friend, and for me. Take your shoes off, or your sandals off in this case. The place on which you stand is holy ground. Now, why a burning bush? And and I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm already looking at the time thinking, yeah, right, two chapters, not going to happen. <laughs> why a burning bush? Well... You'll just be able to see in a few chapters how that when God in his presence comes down on Mount Sinai, it's not too unsimilar or dissimilar to this. Um, It will be in fire and in lightning and the whole mountain will quake and light up with fire. It was a symbol of the glory and the presence and the power of God. It it was a sign that attracted attention, but the, the burning is emblematic of the presence of God. And there's another reason, perhaps. If you just think back, Moses was pretty fired up when he wanted to to deliver the children of Israel on his own, in his own strength. And he killed an Egyptian to deliver the Israelites, which didn't turn out all that good. And maybe it's sort of like God is saying, "Um, Moses, you burned out, man. You flamed out last time. I'm going to kindle something within you that will never burn out. I'm going to give you the power above and beyond yourself to do something that will never burn out. Here's just another thought, if you'll just indulge me a minute. Many scholars believe that the the bush that burned was the acacia bush or the thorn bush of the desert. Now, do you remember back in Genesis 3 that God said, I'm going to curse the ground for your sakes. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. So thorns and thistles became the emblem of the cursed earth because of the sin of man. God is speaking to through the very thing that he once cursed because that is the effect of sin and he's going to deliver the children of Israel out of their bondage. Fast forward, Jesus wore a crown of thorns and many scholars also believe it was the same desert acacia bush. He's bearing the emblem of the curse brought upon by the sin of man for which he came to take away. You could just tie those thoughts together. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As Moses And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up, From that land to a good and large land. You see that progression? I've seen it. I've heard it. I know it. It's put that way. It's put that way in human language called anthropomorphism. Here's the idea. I know totally what these people are going through. With the senses of anybody who had the sense and ability to hear or see and and cognizant to know the situation, I've surveyed it. I know what they're going through. And now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to deliver them, and I'm going to bring them into a good and large land. And notice a specific identification of territorial allotment is given to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Termites, and the oh, they're not in there, and the Jebusites. Those are the Canaanite tribes that comprise the land of Canaan, known as Israel today. I'm going to give them that land. Now, therefore. Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So you get the picture now. You get the scene now. We see the progress now. After 40 years in no man's land... As a shepherd, the very thing the Egyptians despise, God says, I've got a job for you, Moses. You're the one I am now equipping and sending to be the deliverer for these people. Well, it won't be received with readiness on Moses' part. You know, I see a lot of Moses in in all of us, and, and at least in me. I can speak from me. When I listen to Moses' excuses, and I mentioned there are five of them, and if, if, by God's grace, we get to them all, we'll, we'll see them tonight. But so often, we want to use our problems as excuses not to do God's will. Well, I would do that if only, but I can't, so I won't, but maybe later. We always have excuses, always use the problems as excuses not to do God's will. Maybe not always, but often. We're really good at rationalizing. It was Billy Sunday, the evangelist, who said, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Isn't that a good definition? The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I keep that in mind as we go through some of Moses' excuses. By the way, I found a little article that came out of a Canadian newspaper, the Toronto Sun, And they had recorded excuses that people gave them after they got into an auto accident. And I just thought I'd share some of these excuses with you. One driver said, well, I was coming home and I drove into the wrong house and collided with the tree I don't have. (laughs) Okay, no further questions. Here's another excuse. The guy was all over the road and I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. These are actual true things. One, one guy said, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and then headed over the embankment. <laughs> okay, now that's honest. <laughs> now we have a question that just texted in because I mentioned Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, and it says, which, what mountain was Moses told to worship on? Well, Here's the technical versus the general. Technically, you can look at two peaks, the lesser peak being Mount Horeb, the greater peak being Mount Sinai, and that's all contingent upon if you believe the traditional site of Mount Sinai is what I'm talking about. That's even contended. But... The mountain range itself was sometimes called Sinai, as was the whole peninsula, and sometimes called Horeb. So they're interchangeable terms. One means the other, but technically one peak is higher than the other. Okay, let's look at the excuses. Verse 11. Excuse number one. I'm incapable. That's the excuse. I'm incapable. I can't do it. I'm incapable. Verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'd like to answer that. Let's see. You grew up in Egypt. That's who you are. If anybody's suited, you're the guy. I find that an odd question. Who am I? I find it odd because 40 years ago, it's as if he said, look who I am. And that didn't go over very well. And now he's saying, who am I? That I should be the one. I think there's a lesson in being impetuous. I believe that when you're self appointed and God hasn't called you, but you just, you just do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the one to do it. And you press ahead and aren't called to do something. When you're self appointed, you will often become impetuous. You'll rush ahead. And when you do that, you can blunder without counting the cost. You remember the story in the New Testament where young man said, I'll follow you wherever you you go, Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, that's great, sign up right here. He knew that that was an impetuous kind of a decision. So he cautioned him by saying, well, just so you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head at night. So if you're going to follow me, basically, count the cost. Moses hadn't counted the cost 40 years before. Now he's counting the cost. Now the other extreme to being impetuous and being self-confident is to absolutely have no confidence at all. And like Moses said, I can't do it. Who am I? sounds humble, but it's just disobedient. Now I think there's a balance, and I want to give it to you. On this side, self-confidence. On this side, no confidence. Here's the balance. God-confidence. See, what did Paul say? I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. That's the balance. Don't be self-confident. Don't think, I can do this. I'm smart. I'm gifted. I'm talented. If you are, it's only because God gave it to you, so don't trust in that but in him. And don't say, I can't do it, because if God called you to do it, guess what? You can. The balance is God's confidence. Verse 12, so he said, here's God's response to him. I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. I'll prove to you that I'll be with you because there's coming a day when you're going to be on this mountain again with tons of people. You'll be here. And when you are, you remember that. So what does God say to him? Moses says, I'm incapable. And God says to him, I'm proximal or I'm close to you. I'm substantial. I'll be with you. I'm next to you. Here's the principle. Moses, it's not who you are. It's who's with you. And if I'm with you, doesn't matter who you are. That's not the issue. I will be with you. Fast forward to the New Testament. God bless you. Fast forward all the way to the New Testament (laughs) and uh, the disciples. And you remember what did Jesus tell his disciples uh, at at the end of the Gospels before he ascended into heaven? What was the great commission? He said, go, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, don't you think the disciples would have felt a little incapable? Me, go into all the world? I haven't even been outside of Israel. You want us to go to all the world? And what did Jesus say? How did he answer that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Same idea. It's not about you. It's about who's with you. I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Boy, if we could grasp that. If if we as evangelical Christians who love God's word and love God's people and love God's church, if we could grasp that this isn't where it all happens. Okay, this is the salt shaker and it's great to get inside the salt shaker and, and get encouraged and get built up and get equipped. But it's not like This is where we come to meet God. This is God's house. When I was a kid, they said, don't run in God's house because I'd run through the church and get in trouble. This isn't where it ends, folks. When you leave this building, wherever you go, God will be there. God will be there. You might go to a bar tonight. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I will say this. God will be there. David said, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. You can't escape God's presence. So if we can get that idea, God is in every place, the eyes of the Lord, in every place beholding the good and the evil. I'm with you, Moses. I'm with you in, 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 in Egypt. I'm with you in, in Horeb and in Sinai. I'm with you in Midian. I'm with you wherever you go. Okay. Let me just say this. For the average guy, if they got... An audible voice from God and a burning bush—that'd be enough, right? If, if God spoke to you audibly and you saw a bush burning, it wouldn't consume you. Go, I believe, I'm going. The average guy, Moses isn't the average guy. So we get now to another excuse. Excuse number two: I'm unknowledgeable. Number one: I'm incapable. Number two: I'm unknowledgeable. I won't know the answers. Verse 13. Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say, what's his name? What will I tell them? Now, you know why this was such a big thing for Moses is because he grew up in Egypt with a religious system, a worldview that had a pantheon of deities, and all of them had names. They were readily identifiable. There was Apis, the bull. There was Ra, the god of the sun. There was Osiris, the god of the Nile River. There was Heka, the goddess, the frog goddess. Uh, there was the crocodile god. All of them had distinct identities. So Moses is sort of suffering an identity crisis for God. I don't even know your name. I hear your voice. I see your wonders. But what's your name? He asked for that. He doesn't know the answer. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. Not I used to be. Not I will be. But I am the eternal now. I'm the ever present one. The ever existent one. The all eternal one. That's the idea of I am who I am. Moreover, God said to Moses, verse 15, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Sometimes, as Christians, I believe we live The life, I heard it this way, we live the life of a soggy mattress. See, we look back and we say, my my past is secure. My sins are forgiven. All my sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. I trust that the Lord has done a work and he saved me from my sin. He won't hold it against me. And then we look to the future. And we go, yeah, the future is secured. I'm going to be in heaven. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. I believe that. But it's what's in between that sags. The ends are taken care of. But we live the life of the soggy mattress. We're sagging in the middle. And it's the now that we get worried about. Okay, he did a work back then. He'll do a work in the future in heaven. What about now? God wants to speak to you now. God wants to give you promises now. God wants to be the God of the here and the now. And God, by the way, is not just the God of the now. The idea of this name, I am who I am, some believe could be translated the ever and all becoming one. I am. The ever and all becoming one. Because sometimes you'll see the construction of the name of God, Yahweh. I'll get to that in a moment. Y-H-W-H, the consonants or Jehovah, some say it's translated, the name of God, and then another name after it, like Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, or Jehovah or Yahweh Tzitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness, or another name, Yahweh Shama, our banner, Rapha, our healer. So the point is that God reveals himself by this name, but will tag other names onto it, as if to say, I am the all-becoming one, And I become to you whatever you need. Whatever you need now is what I become to you. I am that I am. And you remember, of course, that Jesus appropriated this name for himself in the Gospel of John. And he used seven different times, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. On and on and on. I am. And he said before Abraham was, I am. And verse sixteen, I think I have just a snippet of time to just talk about this excuse I wonder if when we hear the plain commands of the scripture, like one we just talked about, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, if like Moses. We become a little reluctant to do that because we say, yeah, but, but what if they ask me something and I don't know the answer to it? I'm unknowledgeable. I'm not equipped for it. Well, good. Because what'll happen is they'll ask you a question and you won't be equipped for it and you'll go home and you'll find out what the answer is. And next time somebody asks you the answer to that, you'll know it. That was my experience. Quite honestly, when I was a brand new Christian, I was i was two weeks old. Not literally, but spiritually. I was 18, but I was two weeks old in the Lord. And I was part of a a group of people that went street witnessing. Anybody ever go street witnessing? That's where you go on the street and you just start finding people and you start talking to them. Well, I'd never done that. And I thought, I can't do that. And even if I could, I don't want to do that. But I did it because we got... I guess it was the contest how many people you could fit in a Volkswagen bus so we all fit in there and we got emptied out in the parking lot I go out there I'm watching this I'm feeling very uncomfortable and I start telling a little bit about what happened to me in my life and somebody comes up to me or I'm already engaged in a conversation somebody asks me a question about evolution I'm 18 I'm a new Christian I've already gotten some of this heartache at college and they're asking me a question I can't answer so I go well I don't know the answer, honestly, to your question, but if you'll allow me, I'll go get the answer and I'll come back. If you're here next week and I'll give you the answer The I said, okay, that's fair enough. So I went home and I studied the answer to that question and I felt so good about it and so confident about it. And the next week I was looking for that guy. I want to find that guy. I want and even if I can't find somebody, I'll find somebody else and tell him because I, I was so excited about it. Well, that was the second week. Somebody else that night asked me another question, a different one. I couldn't answer But you see the pattern? You keep going home, you keep getting the answer, and pretty soon you get equipped and your your edge, the blade, gets sharp and you're unafraid and you look for people to talk to. And it can't be an excuse because God wants to equip you. Verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites. I won't say the other words, don't worry, Hivites, Jebusites, and to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now we got a question that was texted in. Let's just throw it up on the screen and deal with it. And I can't read it in advance because it's so long, I'd have to actually stop to read it, so I'm just going to read it with you. It says, Why does God ask Moses to remove his shoes? Now, watch this. Follow it up. Can you see it? Aren't feet dirty? Isn't that a great question? (laughs) Wouldn't shoes keep dirty feet from coming into contact with holy ground? Well, that is a good question. But you know what? The ground itself wasn't any cleaner. Right? Right? So it's not like he was inside of a palace or a house or anything like that. Plus, it was symbolic. Keep in mind, in those days, in cultures, shoes were removed in places of worship. Shoes were removed, and uh, it it was seen that, that nothing would keep the feet, the human body, from the touch of the ground in that place that was designated as special or holy or set apart. So it was largely symbolic. It wasn't that 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 piece of dirt was any different than that piece of dirt. But because the presence of God was there to symbolize and show as an act of worship, you leave your shoes off and you approach. Verse 19, God continues with Moses. Or verse 18, Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel. So the king of Egypt... And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. This is not good news so far to Moses. No, not even with the mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you will not go out empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. And so you shall spoil or, as my translation says, plunder the Egyptians. Do you notice how how effortlessly and how completely God knows the future and can predict it. And he knows every conversation that's going to happen, you're going to stand before Moses, he's not going to let you go so readily. In fact, I'm going to have to do this. He tells this in advance to Moses to give him a little bit of a heads up, all preparation, but how effortlessly God can predict the future. When it comes to the future, God did not have to go, Oh, man, I can't see it. Wait a minute. Oh, it's coming. It's just like... He knows everything, the end, from the beginning. So what that means is that God never panics. Did you get that? God is never surprised. God never panics. We do. But if you could catch yourself at that moment and go, wait a minute, God knew this, God saw this, and somehow God has prepared me for this. That's why Corey ten Boom... A godly lady who suffered in a Nazi concentration camp toward the end of her life could say, never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. Do you know God? Then trust him even when you can't see or understand. It's all played out. Chapter four, verse one, we come to the third excuse. Ready? Here's the third excuse. I'm fearful. I'm afraid. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they won't believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Boy, this guy is a worrier. He's playing the what-if game. He's supposing a conversation and a situation that hasn't even happened yet. He's sort of projecting himself into the situation and he's worried about what, what could possibly happen if this and then what And God has already said, well, you got a bush and you got a voice and you got my presence. What else do you need? He's not satisfied. He's fearful. He's worried about it. There's an old man at the end of his life. Somebody asked him about worry and he said, um, what things in your life did you worry most about? He smiled and said, things that never happened. I can look back and say I worried about stuff that never happened. Well, Moses is worried about stuff that hasn't yet happened. And I would say, wouldn't you, that the fear of man is one of the biggest hindrances to doing the will of God? We get afraid if we step out for Christ and we say something, we'll be rejected. What if they don't like me? What if I I get put out and rejected at the office? What if my family or they say this behind my back? We project situations that haven't even happened yet. That's why. Why? When God chose the prophet Jeremiah, God said, Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. You know why? Because young Jeremiah was going to proclaim the word of God and probably the people would look at him like this. I don't even know if that's a good gr- grumpy voice. I can't even see it. You can. Maybe, maybe that. Maybe that's better. Maybe they'd they look back real gnarly at him. So it's, don't even look at him. Don't even be afraid of them. I've called you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't worry about what hasn't happened yet. Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, I love this. See, Moses saying, Yeah, but suppose, yeah, but what if? God said, Moses, what's in your hand? He said, A rod. He said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. <laughs> I would too. I hate snakes. Indiana Jones does too. I'm dating myself. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Here's what God says about that. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Okay. Let me tell you about shepherds. Shepherds carried two things. A staff and a rod. A staff they would walk with, walking stick, and they'd guide the sheep with it, and a rod to beat up wolves, to beat off um, predators, and even to kill snakes. And when sheep were approached in the morning with the shepherd, and they saw in the hand the staff and the rod, they felt very comforted. They felt together. They weren't skittish. That's why David said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, I serve a God who will guide me and beat off the enemy. I feel very, very secure. Okay. What's in your hand, Moses? A rod. A rod's just a stick. It's just a stick. But in the hands of a shepherd, it's a tool. In the hand of a shepherd, it's something powerful and mighty that brings comfort to the sheep. Whatever is in your hand, if you place it in the Lord's hands, can become a mighty, powerful tool. I can ask you the question, what's in your hand? What do you do for a living? Some of you would say, a pen's in my hand. I'm a writer. Others would say, "Um, uh, a broom's in my hand. Whatever skill it is you do or whatever you find your hands to do, It's just a stick, it's just a pin, it's just a broom, it's just an occupation. But here's what I want to say. Your simple deed, your simple task, your simple occupation can become, if you place it in God's hands, a mighty tool and a powerful tool to accomplish His will. What was a sling? You know what a sling was made out of? Leather. A sling is just a little pouch made out of leather with two strings on it. It's nothing, it's a piece of leather. But in David's hands... It's a mighty tool. The jawbone of a donkey. Worthless. Nothing. Throw it away. Ah, but in the hand of Samson, it can kill a thousand Philistines. Very simple throwaway items. But if they're in the right hands, they can become very powerful. Put your ordinary sticks into the hands of an extraordinary God. That's sort of the lesson that Moses is learning here. He says, I'm afraid. What's in your hand? Well, you've got a stick. Throw it down. Check this out. Whoa. See, when you place that in my care, and my power, in my hands, look, when, look what can happen. Now I have another question. I think it's a good question and I neglected to explain it. So let's get back to it. The question is, can you explain the vowels in the name of God, Yahweh? Okay, now follow me here. I need your attention. We don't know how that name is pronounced. You know why we don't know? Because the Jews believed that the name of God was so sacred that it was ineffable or unpronounceable, that sinful lips should never pronounce the name of God. Moses knew what it was, but we don't have it preserved because what happened, as that name got written down through history, the Jewish people left out the vowels and kept the consonants. And the consonants that are left, translated into English, would be YHWH. So is it Yahweh? Is it... Yahweh is it? Yah, it, it could be a few different pronunciations. The idea of the name Jehovah is because when there was a translation of the Old Testament called, called the Masoretic Text, ever heard of the Masoretic Text? Sometimes you read the Old Testament, you'll see a little footnote in your Old Testament that says Masoretic Text says the Masoretes were a group of translators, and when they translated the name of God, they kept the consonants, the YHWH. But they inserted the vowels of another name of God, Adonai, into the name Yahweh. So it became Yahovah, or later on, Jehovah. That's how it became sort of corrupted into English. But the truth is, nobody knows what the name of God should be pronounced like. We only have those four consonants called by scholars the Tetragrammaton, those four letters of the name of God. So it is often called, and you'll often hear me refer to the name of God as Yahweh. Okay, so, sort of lost my place. I'll get back to it. Furthermore, verse 6, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. Do this, like pulling Napoleon. Put Put your hand down in your vest. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out again, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. And then he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again, drew it out of his bosom. Behold, it was refreshed like the other flesh. And then it will be, If they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, pour it on dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. Okay, so, this excuse, excuse number three, I'm fearful. How does God answer it? I'm powerful. Well, I'm fearful. I'm powerful. So for every excuse, God has a wonderful answer. And it's all about his character, his ability, his working in Moses' life. Here's the fourth excuse. I'm unsuitable. I'm not the right man for the job. I lack natural qualifications. Verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm just doing that for a fact. Obviously, it's not having a good effect. (laughs) So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? I love this answer. Lord, I can't talk. Excuse me. Moses, who made man's mouth? Who invented the mouth? Moses. I did. I invented it. My idea. Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf? the seeing, or the blind, have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Okay, so this excuse is I'm I'm unsuitable. I can't talk. The Living Bible translates this excuse as I have a speech impediment. The Moffat translation says it this way, I have no command of words. And still another translation says, I'm a stutterer. I'm a stutterer. So, look, God, I've never joined the Toastmasters. I failed speech in high school. I'm not the right guy for the job. I lack the natural qualifications. You know, I wonder, if Cecil B. DeMille, when he made the Ten Commandments movie, and he cast, remember who he cast for Moses? Charlton Heston, right? Remember, who, who remembers Charlton Heston? Please tell me you've seen the Ten Commandments movie. You're like not an American if you haven't seen that movie. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I wonder, if Cecil B. DeMille would have read this verse, I wonder if he would have picked Charlton Heston. Because he was so eloquent and spoke so beautifully in, let my people go. When it really was sort of like, let, 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 let my p- 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 people go. Puts a whole spin on things that are a little bit differently for us. He says, I'm not eloquent, I can't talk. According to ancient documents that we have in Egypt, eloquence was considered a premium to the Egyptians. They considered it very important. Moses would have known that. He grew up under Egypt. And and here's what's interesting, and before somebody texts me this, I'm going to answer it. Because when Stephen is giving the history of Israel in the New Testament, before the Sanhedrin, he brings up the point... That Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt and was mighty in speech, powerful in speech. That's what Stephen says about him. So would you consider that revisionism, historical revisionism? Is that an inaccuracy? Why now is he suddenly saying, I'm not eloquent, I can't speak, I don't have a command of words? A couple of reasons. Number one, he totally at this point lacked confidence. He lacked confidence, and he looked at his life, and, and it's an excuse. It's the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Maybe he realizes, this isn't my strong suit. I can't do this. It's not my strong suit. Here's another possibility. He's been in the desert how long? Forty years in the desert with sheep. That's not like meaningful conversation. <laughs> you, know, you sort of lose your edge on talking with people and having meaningful, deep, explanatory conversations when you're dealing with sheep all the time. He's been out of that environment. But the big problem is Moses is looking at his weaknesses rather than God's strength. God called you to do it. Step out. Something I've discovered over time. I believe this to be true. Absolutely. It seems that God places a much higher premium on your availability than your ability. Well, I'm really not good at this. You're the one for the job. Well, why would I be the one for the job? Because when you do it, I'll get the glory. Yeah, you were the kid who said after that first Bible study, I can't do this. I'm, I don't want to do this. Well, do, do it again next week. Do Jonah chapter 2. I'm a failure. I don't want to do this. In the very area where you maybe feel weak may be the area God wants to help you excel in. It's just, I love this. Moses is the spokesman for God, and he says, I c- c- can't talk, and he's about to be a spokesperson. So the Lord said to him, and again, I just want to reiterate this and get into this really briefly, who has made man's mouth, who made the mute, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind, have not I said the Lord. Do you find that interesting, that God takes the responsibility for all the handicaps, That's not a little responsibility. That's quite a responsibility. When we read this, immediately my heart is set at odds with God in my natural man. My whole concept of God gets challenged when God makes this statement and gives no explanation for it. He didn't even feel he needed to explain it or justify it. I'm responsible for blindness, deafness, pain. I'm sovereign, he is saying. And this really is an impediment for lots of people. Our whole concept of God is challenged. However, if you can get over this hurdle, your faith will be unshakable. If you can ever get to a place in your walk where you absolutely trust God is sovereign, and even though I don't get it, I don't understand his purposes, he's got one and I don't need to know it and he doesn't have to explain it to me, I can live with it, your faith will be so deep it will be unmovable. Now, having said that, I will say that the world that we live in now does not represent God's ideal or original intention. We are scarred and marred by sin. And this is the long-term effect of that. And it's been spread out many, many years, but in every single generation. And whenever I see sickness and I see these issues that are brought up, these handicaps, the first thing I see when I say it is, oh, Lord, hasten the day. When the blind will see and the deaf will hear, and there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more death and no more suffering. But right now, we're still living in this very sin scarred world. And I see that instead of a theological problem, it's an opportunity to show the love and compassion of Christ to people who are suffering. So if we just look at it and go, "I don't get this. This is really weird. This is I don't," feel... you know what's a lot better? You reach into that person's life you get involved, and you bring the love and joy and compassion of Jesus. More important than what you do or do not understand. In the name of Jesus and be his ambassador. Okay, we have just enough time to barely cover excuse number five, and I'm going to read quick. This is what I want you to see. This is the last and final excuse, and here's the real reason. Here's the real reason. Here it is. I'm inflexible. I'm inflexible. I don't want to do it. I'm just not going to do it. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. In other words, don't want to do it. Send somebody else. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron, the Levite, your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. This is very revealing. It reveals to me that all the other excuses were the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. It was just a smokescreen. The real reason is, send somebody else. I don't want to do it. I'm inflexible. First he says, who am I? You know why I did that? It really sounds spiritual. Oh, I couldn't do that. Yeah, that's just a cover-up for being disobedient. But now you act so humble. But you know what? If God tells you to do something and you go, I can't do that, that's not humble. That's being disobedient. So the real reason comes out, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. I understand that. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. So I've got two mouths going now that I'm going to be with. And I will teach you what you shall do. And he shall be my spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. In other words, I'll give you the message, you give it to him, and you just sort of stand there and he'll talk. And you shall take the rod in your hand with which you shall do these signs. And Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. When your father-in-law is on your side... Life is good. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. And Moses took his wife and his sons, set them on a donkey, returned to the land of Egypt. Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Notice, not the little shepherd's rod. Now it's God's rod. Don't you love that? It was just his shepherd rod, but it's God's rod now. He's got the God rod. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see all that, see that, all, that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read all the way through and stop, and I'm going to ask you a few questions that you're going to have to find the answer to. You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So... I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your sons, your firstborn. It will come to pass that on the way at the encampment of the Lord, the Lord or the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. And so he let him go. And she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Domestic problems. (laughs) The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he did the signs in the sight of all the people. And so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, that they bowed their heads and worshipped. I have two questions for you. Why does it say that God hardened or would harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would it say that God would harden Pharaoh? You have to answer that question or come up with that, dig that out. Number two, why did God want to kill Moses? And you're thinking, wait a minute, I want to ask you that question, Skip. While well, I'm asking you that question, that's what you're going to dig up and find out for next week. And uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Granted, the whole last section of this chapter is an odd, weird kind of a thing from our modern perspective. We're going to look at that a little bit next week and get into the next chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you speak to men and women. You speak through the means of your word, but also through unlikely things. You might use somebody that we don't necessarily like to speak a word into our lives, into our heart. You might use a circumstance of pain or problem to deal with certain things. That becomes your voice to us. We always want to be open to match whatever that is with your word, but always be open to you dealing with us and speaking with us and giving us commands. And you've already given us one, and that is to go into this world wherever we are and to make an impact by spreading the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we'd throw away any excuses and we would just go for it and watch you work and get the glory and be used. And Lord, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to go overseas. We have children. And we can speak into their lives and we can disciple them and minister to them and train them up to be men and women of God. And we have parents and we have brothers and sisters and we have neighbors and we have friends. Just use us. We want to be used by you and be spokesmen and spokeswomen. In Jesus' name, amen.